One of my participants said that it was the most impactful thing out of six weeks of training because she became, she started changing the way that she ate and she immediately started to lose weight. She wasn't trying to lose weight. She didn't change her diet. She just started being more mindful. And when you think about it, that is usually part of most diet, quote unquote, I hate diet, but most weight management or most healthy eating plans are involving mindfulness. They might not call it mindfulness, but they'll say, turn off the television, find a quiet place, really enjoy your food, enjoy the taste. Those are mindful activities. I'm Greg Runny. And I'm Rob Reeford. And this is Mind Body Matters. Welcome to Mind Body Matters. This is the place where we discuss all matters of the mind and body. And here's my very good friend, producer, and my co-host, Rob Reeford. With a frog in my throat today. Oh, no. Yes. Know, how, how did the frog get in there? Um, stress. I think it's all about stress. <laughs> Isn't that the case, for sure? And I, actually, it kind of ties in with what we're talking about today is uh, that uh, when you have stress, mindfulness is, uh, is a really cool thing to do to reduce that. So maybe afterwards, uh, a little bit of mindfulness and uh, maybe your, your voice will improve once the frog is out. What is mindfulness? It's like meditation. Okay. Have you ever done meditation before? No. To be honest with you, a lot of my friends have, and people, like, they go on and on about it. They go, it's the best thing. You'll feel so great. But, of course, I never took their advice. Have you ever, let's say, gone fishing and you're in the canoe or boat and it's really quiet and you you kind of hear the... The, the the waves coming up to the boat and you're just kind of and, and dueling banjos in the background no no that that wouldn't be mindfulness that would be uh, okay. uh something totally different with uh, Burt okay. Reynolds involved in that baiting <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry I'm just, I'm just getting off on a tangent there no. but anyway that's, but, that's funny no sorry I get what you're saying, though. I could be uh, in a boat, the birds chirping, and you're hearing the water, uh, you know, the waves. And, and it's just like it's taking time in your life to be peaceful. Yeah, yeah, peaceful. And even more so that, um, okay, let's say you're sitting in the boat and, and you're, you're, you're listening to the waves, and all, all of a sudden you start thinking about a movie called Deliverance. That's, <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's a good example of how we distract ourselves. Okay. Like our, our mind is constantly going. Right. So when you're sitting in the boat and you hear the waves coming up, yeah. you're being in the moment, in yes. the present moment, right now. Yeah. Now that's the whole thing about about mindfulness. And and the person that we have on today has been practicing mindfulness for over a, a decade. She she hasn't like she's not an expert, but she's used mindfulness in her journey. Yep. And she's found it, it changed her life in, in many ways, and especially her perspective of the, of the world around us that kind of goes unnoticed, like I was saying. And she's an old friend from way back. From way back, yeah, yeah. Val, uh, Valerie Gao is on the show today, and when she was Val Scott, like we all kind of changed our names. We yep. didn't, but a lot of people did. That, uh, yep. Val Scott worked at an FM station when you and I worked at the AM station. So you probably you probably remember. Yeah, and when you hear her voice, you might say, boy, she's got a great voice. It's because she used to be on the radio. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. As we were talking about mindfulness, it, it and you're saying that a lot of people are doing meditation, mindfulness, it is really popular. And it's everywhere. Right. And there's mindfulness-based stress reduction or 
MBSR and there's mindfulness apps, but I'm not sure if we truly understand what mindfulness is. Like, for example, you know, you're, you're just starting to kind of get to know what it is. And I, I think a lot of us are trying to define it, and it's really hard to define. It really, what better way to understand mindfulness than talking to someone who practices it on a regular basis? So um, we're going to bring Valerie Gao into the studio. But before that, helping us understand what the definition is. I'm not sure if you've heard of this guy, John Kabat-Zinn. No, I haven't. No, okay. So John Kabat-Zinn is uh, considered the father of what we know now as mindfulness-based stress reduction. I found a clip, and in the clip, he was asked, what is mindfulness? And I think it's the best way, the closest definition to what it is. Mindfulness is actually a way of connecting with your life. Uh, And it's something that uh, doesn't involve a lot of energy. It involves a kind of cultivating attention in a particular way. So what the way I define it is it's paying attention on purpose in the present moment, non-judgmentally. And then I like to add sometimes as if your life depended on it. Because it does. Uh, attention is the faculty that allows us to navigate our lives. So does that make sense, Rob? You know, uh, just yeah. paying attention? We don't pay attention very well, do we? No, but uh, one thing he did mention about being in the present moment. And, mm-hmm, and it mm-hmm. reminds me of an old saying, and you've, you've heard this, but uh, I, I was told one, one years ago by this guy, he says, you know what, Rob? If you've got your left foot in yesterday and your right foot in tomorrow, you're pissing on today. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 So it's, you... a, it's about being in the present moment. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, kind of crass. Uh, but <laughs> 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 but it, it is. That definitely describes it. That's a good definition because if we're, if we're, you know, if we're not in the present moment, then we're not really in tune with what's happening. So uh, a, a, a good definition. So you're getting it. You're getting it. So far, so good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and um, you know, once uh, Valerie's in the studio, then uh, you'll get some more information and be a little bit more informed, as we all are going to be. So a bit about Valerie. Uh, she worked for the American Red Cross and helped families reunite after Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans. As well, in her personal journey, she's been practicing mindfulness since 2010. She's an active member of the Mindful Society Global Institute, MSGI, and attends courses at the University of California, San Diego's Center for Mindfulness. And she currently works with companies looking to support their employees and experiencing mindfulness to manage their stress and anxiety. So, so thrilled to talk to her again. Here's Valerie Gao. Val, thank you so much for coming into the studio. It's so good to see you. It's great to see you as well. I'm really It's been a minute, as they say, right? Yeah, no kidding. A couple of minutes, my friend. (laughs) A couple couple minutes. (laughs) Well, I really appreciate this because um, when you and I uh, connected a while ago, you mentioned that you're into meditation and mindfulness, and I thought, you know, with uh, the podcast coming up, what, what a great way to talk about mindfulness then. Bring someone in that actually practices it. So in the intro... Uh, I talked to Rob about mindfulness, and we talked about how popular it is. It's everywhere. There's mindfulness-based stress reduction and all all these other therapies. But I'm not sure overall if we truly understand what mindfulness is. I think a lot of people have misconceptions. So I think that 
it makes sense to speak to someone like yourself that you shared with me that you're a practitioner of mindfulness. A little bit later, I guess in a few months, you're going to learn about something called mindful self-compassion, which, my God, we all need a little bit more compassion nowadays for ourselves, right? Absolutely. I was thinking that um, when we talked a few days ago before the interview here, you mentioned about your journey that led you to meditation and mindfulness. And I was really struck by the work that you've done. You worked for the American Red Cross for five years. How did that happen? <laughs> yeah, it's kind of You're weird, Canadian. Right? How, how, how did you end exactly. up with the American Red Cross? Why not the Canadian Red Cross? Uh, well, the circumstances were that I was living and working in Vancouver. Um, and my uh, partner at the time got a job in Seattle. He was in broadcasting, as you and I used to both be, and that's how, which is how we know each other. Um, and then he got this offer. Um, he'd moved off air and was more on the management side and got an offer to work in Seattle. Um, and we loved Seattle. We had done drives down there, so we decided to move there. Well, I had to find a job and I didn't have legal status so I had to find a company that was willing to support me anyway through some networking and you know a bunch of interviews and so on I ended up with this job called international services specialist um, at the Red Cross in in Seattle I was responsible for a county a region um, as part of the International Red Cross mission to help families who are separated because of war or disaster natural disaster and so how it worked was helping local people who were, say, came as a refugee to Seattle area um, or uh, people who, well, actually, that was mostly it. The other side would be I'd get a request from headquarters in Washington, D.C. for someone who was thought to be in the region where I was working. So both sides of that would happen. It was kind of an interesting job because it was like a detective. You had to help people think back like how do you think why do you think this person is in Kenya for example who did you hear it from how did they know um, where might they be when was that but you also had to be a caseworker and a social worker to be kind to be compassionate to listen empathically to be able to really support them um, in their situation and, and listen really closely to get the information you needed so yeah that's that's kind of how it happened and that was the role there were other responsibilities in uh, domestic disasters as well like floods fires earthquakes whatever would happen in the US but the majority of the role was dealing with the refugee clientele you mentioned to me that you did some work in New Orleans uh, after Hurricane Katrina I did indeed. I went out. So the initial response with any kind of major disaster is the most critical need, obviously, right? And then it's uh, triaged. So it starts with things like shelter, medical care, food, you know, safety. Uh, and then those primary care needs are met. It becomes time to really focus on the families getting back in contact, which is enormously painful emotionally, uh, you know, but you can't prioritize it above being safe and dry and everything else. And so they sent a small team of us um, to um, to actually Baton Rouge headquarters in uh, Louisiana uh, for the Red Cross. And it was the biggest disaster in history, obviously, in the U.S., with more than 400 shelters, which was just more than triple anything they'd ever had. And uh, we were walking around, we are driving around, but we were going to... Uh, various different shelters in different areas, even cities outside of the area, and uh, holding satellite phones for people and who would line up to make phone calls when there was no cell service, for example. Uh, heartbreaking, because most times they got voicemail or nothing. 
And that was how long really was this hard. after the hurricane uh, Two when weeks. you were working there? Two weeks after, right? Yeah. So people were still separated. People were still deeply traumatized. They were still in shelters. In fact, another hurricane hit while I was there, which was Rita. Um, oh, and right. It did hit in place. right afterwards. Yeah. yeah. And that was, was not quite in the same area, but it was close. And so people had to re-shelter. They had to move again. So if they had contact with their family, they then lost it again sometimes. Like, it was unbelievable. So anyway, uh, you know, helping people to add their names to once we got a website set up, which was the first time ever with the help of Microsoft was in Seattle um, we had this website so people could we could enter their information and then family could find them and stuff like that so you know you did some work before you, you know groups and you know you're you're a radio person and stuff like that but this yeah. is this is totally different work for you how yeah. did it impact you well this was late in my time at the Red Cross this was in my last year actually there uh, my fifth year so I'd been doing work with refugees and people with traumatic experiences for a while that helped me a lot in understanding what people were going through. However, it was long hours in the hot sun. I had a lot of trouble sleeping because I kept hearing those phone calls. I kept seeing people's faces in the middle of the night, you know, with the distress on their faces and their their worry and their tears. And I really, I did struggle. When I processed out, they have a proper debriefing process that, that's required and I spoke to one of the nurses I said look I tried to take some sleeping medication because I was really struggling uh, but it actually put me into a different state of alertness it impacted me negatively and she said yeah she had that experience you're, you're nodding your head they had that experience multiple times with other people that depending on what you take so I learned something about self-care um, you know I, I learned that I couldn't I learned why these placements are usually only two weeks to three maximum I thought, let me go longer. No, 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 no. There's a reason. You can only do this for so long. I guess, I guess the only other thing I would add to that is I learned that even, and I, the whole time of the Red Cross, I learned that even if you don't have a solution, you don't have a way to solve a critical, difficult problem for somebody, the act of listening is enormously powerful. People cried with me. I cried with them. We just sat together and, you know, felt what they were going through, but also just allowed them to have this moment with another human being to say, this is hard. And we'll be right back. Mind Body Matters is brought to you by Audible and the hidden power of shadow work. Hi, listeners. I have something to share with you. I've read a lot of self-help books, but there's one book that I found really helpful for me personally, The Hidden Power of Shadow Work by Marcus Black. In the book, I found the part of ourselves that we'd rather forget is what's called your shadow self. I know it sounds ominous, but it isn't. By doing the shadow work exercises in this book, I learned how to understand and even embrace that part of myself. There's six activities and questions on how to discover identify, and get to know your shadow self. If you're ready to master your shadow and start healing from within, then get the paperback or Kindle edition of The Hidden Power of Shadow Work by Marcus Black. Go to Amazon.com. By the way, I like the book so much I narrated the audiobook myself. True story. It's available on Audible from Google Play and the App Store. Now, back to the show. 
Well, with disasters, obviously the people themselves are going through a traumatic experience, and, and, and I'm sure a lot of people were diagnosed with PTSD yes. um, uh, in New Orleans. But what I do know as a therapist is that there is um, what we call vicarious trauma and compassion fatigue. And I'm wondering if you experienced that. Did you experience that vicarious trauma, that their trauma kind of, as you mentioned, it kind of came up in you know your dreams and you had difficult sleeping. Yeah. Did you find that uh, happen for you? Yeah, but not just with Katrina. I was also there during nine eleven. Uh, so I didn't know that. Yeah, oh. but I didn't. I didn't. There was no. You know what? Sadly, tragically, there wasn't a need for family reconnection because people were gone. Right? There wasn't uh, a situation initially. They thought there would be, but then so many people. Like there wasn't anybody to talk with I mean it was so sad I we would we were initially inundated with phone calls that we would normally take to help people reconnect and then there was a realization that they would not need a team on site uh, to help with that so there was this feeling of not being able to physically do anything which was very difficult when a lot of my colleagues were heavily involved in and going to New York City some of them still dealing with things like cancer um because of the impact of the dust and everything else in those long hours. I, I remember one particular phone call that I took from a gentleman whose uh, brother was missing, and it was, I can still hear his voice, actually, and it was palpable. We both knew that there was nothing I could do. We both knew we weren't be able to have a solution. We knew that this was... Did you feel helpless? Totally, totally. I thought I was going to cry, and then I thought I have to stay strong for him. You know, his voice was flat absolutely flat it was like no affect as if he just was trying to do anything because there was nothing he could do and he was helpless so I just said you know you're doing the best you can and I tried to encourage him that he was doing the right thing and that we would do our best and talk to him about how he was doing um, talk to him about staying away from CNN and not watching coverage uh, things that he could do to take care of himself and then I uh, I could not stop thinking about it in the night so that was like a precursor to the Katrina experience because I, I knew that that was my tendency. You know, that I would take it on and it would really impact me in a deep level. Other than some medication, what helped you with the images at nighttime? Well, this is before I discovered meditation and mindfulness, and I really didn't have a lot of coping techniques, to be honest. No. Val, that's what I thought when I was talking to you about this. I thought, I bet her experiences... Uh, like I said, I, I know about compassion fatigue and vicarious trauma and debriefing and that. I thought, I bet you found something that helped you get through that. And I'm not surprised it's meditation. So tell me tell me about that. Tell me what the link between your work there and how did you find meditation in all this? I had always been interested. And I think I think the deep listening that was required in my job, and I did so much of that in my role, uh, deeply connecting with people. I was kind of known for that. And that was a you know, a real area of strength and an area that was important to me. And so that was connected with being mindful, for sure. I just didn't have a label for it. But I, I guess I, I wasn't really aware of the cost that was starting to happen, like you said, the compassion fatigue thing. Uh, what ended up happening was I, I came back to Canada and uh, took a job that was less impactful in that way because I was burned out. So that's when I started helping newcomers to Canada with job search and, you know, their integration into the culture here. Um, and after a couple of years of doing that, um, I ended up in a relationship that with somebody who was uh, deeply, severely mentally ill. I had a very traumatic experience in this relationship that was painful. Um, and I 
was just seeking something, you know, some sort of peace is the best word I can think of. I want looking for grace, looking for a way to continue in my life without these troubling memories and thoughts of activities and, and comments and, you know, moments that were really scary with this person. And that's when I started learning about meditation. I had already been doing things like gratitude journaling, which I then learned later was mindful activity. <laughs> Didn't know I was doing it, but I had done that earlier. And that, in fact, before moving to Seattle. So I kind of, the seeds were planted somewhat earlier, but this was the real kind of like, okay, I need help. And, uh, and so the first thing I did was try to learn about how to meditate. And the one that really worked for me, that really clicked, was a local library workshop with a Buddhist monk. A library workshop with a Buddhist monk? Yes. How does that happen? <laughs> well, this local temple... Was called... he promoting a book? Was he selling... <laughs> <laughs> that wouldn't be very Buddhist of him, would it? <laughs> Although they do. Uh, no, so so the situation was that there's a local meditation center and temple called Kadampa. At that time, this is a number of years ago, they would send this particular monk, but also some of the teachers, Buddhist teachers, to a whole variety of library branches and to do workshops related to dealing with difficult emotions like anger, jealousy, uh, fear, you know, whatever it might be. And they would like they would make a whole session about that particular emotion. What struck you when you're doing meditation? Uh, obviously, like most people and myself, uh, yeah. the first thing you realize, my God, there's so many thoughts going through my head. But, yes. but what what hit you that wow, this is going to be very helpful? I think it was just the quiet and the the kindness, the compassionate approach. Certain things during the meditation that spoke to me, which come from Buddhism, but actually are not entirely just Buddhist. They're just about humanity, are things like um, caring for yourself. So you mentioned self-compassion earlier. So things like attachment, which is a... a of all the Buddhist concepts, it's the one that I am challenged by the most and I feel is most significant for me personally. Letting go of attachment to outcomes is the biggest thing for me. Um, and noticing my attachment to my story, my attachment to those negative experiences, which sounds counterintuitive, right? Why would you want to spend time in that pain? But you do. We do. I do. And I found myself just going back and back and back to those images and then saying to myself, okay, this is not kind. This is actually not something that's helping me. Why do you attach <laughs> yourself to terrible memories and experiences? Why do you think we're attached to them? I'm not sure. I mean, I think for each person, it could be unique to that individual. Uh, for some people, it's the identity that starts to become so entrenched as a person who's been through an experience like this. Uh, it it uh, if you keep thinking about it and focusing there, it doesn't it keeps you there, and therefore uh, no steps need to be taken to be happier um, to change your life. Uh, it's safe almost, even though it's scary. It's kind of safe to stay there because it's what you know. We know. I mean, you're a therapist, right? You've got that training. We know that those traumatic experiences from childhood and whatever it is that we've had, those are things that are familiar, and so we stick with them. I think there's something, as adults, when you have an experience that's traumatic, this similar kind of thing can happen. You mentioned that you spoke with a monk as well uh, after yes, your meditation? Yes, multiple times, actually. What was that like? What was the, what was the discussion <sighs> like? 
I, this, you hear me sigh, this person is so important to me. And uh, I actually then struggled with attachment to him. <laughs> the irony, because I, I started going to the temple um, instead of just the, the school or the uh, library and then got really involved in, you know, in the singing at the beginning and all this other stuff. Anyway, it was very moving for me because so much of the philosophy resonated. But talking to him, he's a Western monk. He was born in Canada. He was a younger guy. And he would tell stories that, that were very rooted in pop culture. You know, he would, like, reference Seinfeld and stuff. and Something you wouldn't expect, eh? Totally. Like, it was very accessible for people. And, and that helped as an entryway to understanding something at a deep level to be able to laugh. I um, had the opportunity to see Dalai Lama. Uh, wow. The Dalai Lama, and what struck me was is how much he laughed. And then I seen in interviews yeah. as well, uh, just this sense of almost like a childish kind of uh, uh, yes. laughter. And I was really struck that the questions that people were asking were really, really deep questions. And he often had a very humorous response to it, but the laughter really struck me. So that you, that same thing happened with you when when you spoke with him. His humor. Definitely. And at the the retreat, I, I attended a retreat after like only going to classes for, I don't know, five or six weeks. And, and, and it was kind of a joke that I was so new. I was kind of like, you know, a baby. Um, everybody else at this retreat had been attending this temple for more than a year, years. Uh, and uh, and I just had an introduction to to the whole practice. And I uh, he would offer chances to um, sit with him and have a conversation. Like he, he opened his door and there was an opportunity to do that in between the sessions. And anyway, so I, I lined up to do that and I told him that I was really struggling because I wanted to forgive this person who had caused me so much pain and trauma. I was staying an extra day and I wanted his advice about that. So he pulled out one of the books that they sold at the bookstore in the temple and he handed it to me and marked a couple of places and specific meditations that would be helpful and supportive. And what was needed, that I didn't have to forgive this person for some of the things that were so painful. It was more a matter of, like, you know, that, that forgiveness isn't about everything's okay. The behavior, it doesn't make the behavior okay. It's not. Uh, but it's more of letting go of my own pain by letting go of holding on to that anger uh, and that um, hurt and disappointment and, you know, pain that I was experiencing. But anyway, at the end of this conversation, they had been, if people borrowed books, they were asking them to return them to the temple after, right? And so I said, when would you need this book back? And he said, oh, no, that's a gift. And I broke into tears. And he said, oh, please don't cry. <laughs> and then he started laughing, you know. And uh, and I said, no, no, I'm just really touched because I was so fragile at that point that that was just such a meaningful, kind gesture. Uh, and I have it still with those places marked, even though I haven't had to look at it for a long time. Wow, what a gift. So you were in uh, the retreat and you had the realization and the understanding of letting go of of the pain, as you mentioned. What transpired between then and your work in mindfulness? What was the transition? Now, I would assume that there isn't a great deal of transition between the two, but how did you, how how did it go from meditation at a retreat to practicing mindfulness? And what do you think is the difference? Ah, that's an interesting question. Uh, I get asked that a lot, actually. Um, so the retreat was a healing experience and really important, pivotal experience in my own self-development and understanding of the power of something like meditation. 
and the experience of being at that temple and or I wasn't even at the temple yet at that point, but practicing meditation on a regular basis, my daily practice at home every day um, and my practice in the classes, I was feeling more and more the impact of that in my life in other areas. I, uh, I kept going at this for years. And then there was a period where my manager um, in the program that I work in underemployed newcomers to Canada, helping them to find better uh, positions for themselves and earn money that's more in keeping really with their skills and experience. My manager said, you know, you're so passionate about this. I think it would be great if you got some training and you could support our clients with resilience because they are going through so much. And I was just delighted. So I started doing this with people on a regular basis. And then I started getting feedback at how much they found it helpful. They started doing it before they went into their meetings. Uh, they started doing it before they walked into their house to see their kids at the end of the day and deal with family situations, uh, any kind of difficult situation. And so I started taking courses at Continuing Studies at the University of Toronto, um, where now there's, this is many years ago, now there are a number of certificate programs available that people can take. And it was just like, oh, yes. I've arrived. So I really enjoyed doing that. Uh, and then eventually I, um, well, I guess what happened was the, the pandemic hit. And uh. Uh, yeah, and I had belonged, I had been going to annual meditation retreats, or sorry, not retreats, conferences run by a group called the Mindful Society. Uh, these days it's called Mindful Society Global Institute. I'd done this for a couple of years in a row and I would bring back my learnings and share it, you know, with the class and so on. And then I, uh, I thought, well, they have a membership program for practitioners and you can join and you can be with other people and you can, you know, so they call it in Buddhism, Sangha, right? You can join a oh, community sangha. of people. Yes. Yes. Yeah, it's not Buddhism, but, it, but it's a similar concept. But yes, I would say the word Sangha, I always just attach it to community. I always just think about the, which is what it is, right? And, and it's one thing to learn. I did a lot of learning, especially during the pandemic in isolation. I live alone. Uh, I felt very isolated. I'm an extrovert. I mean, hey, broadcaster and so on, person <laughs> who likes to lead groups and you know, all the people, 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 and all of a sudden I was alone a lot. They somehow flipped the whole thing to be online. Uh, I've been to conferences, so I, I, yeah. I have that in my mind. How, how did they flip that and transfer that to online? Well, they used Zoom and they had a whole bunch of different links. So um, whatever you were interested in, you'd go and grab that link. You would just, yeah, you would pick the one you wanted, go and join that link. You had access to all of them if you paid the price. Um, and that was it. And if you ended up deciding to leave that, you'd just leave the Zoom meeting. And you could go back to the main list on the website and pick something else and click on and join that. Uh, it was incredible. And uh one of the comments that was made, I'm trying to remember if that was the one, Dr. Rick Hansen, who's one of my favorite um, teachers, and yeah, a couple of excellent books from, from Rick Hansen. Um, one is Hardwiring Happiness, uh, and the other one that's more recent is called Resilient, and I would recommend both of them. And we'll be right back. Mind Body Matters is brought to you by Pivot Design Group. Whether using an app, scrolling through a website, or looking at a logo, for many, design is a mystery. Who and how decided that something should work or look like that? Pivot Design Group takes the mystery out of design. Specializing in healthcare, Pivot uses a unique process called informed design. 
This insightful and data-based framework informs every design decision to create effective and sustainable experiences and services. To learn more, visit www.pivot.design. And now, back to the show. The comment was, we're in an enforced retreat. Everybody is on retreat. Enforced now. retreat, especially during lockdown. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was May of 2020. Like, it, had, it was, like, still very fresh for people, and they were lost. They were quite troubled. Um, it was that community that was provided to me through those sessions, practicing with other people, even though it was online, hugely supportive and helpful. Was there anything lost in the translation when, when it comes to mindfulness as a practice with the community versus being in person with the community? Was there anything lost within mindfulness? Yeah, you know, the physical togetherness of the event in a big room and the powerful sense of all of us being there was was quite altered being online the the beauty of doing it online was that you could bring speakers from all over the world and they didn't have to travel being exposed to more and more and more of these different facilitators and leaders and learning more and more wisdom um, traditions through the sessions that was offered by this organization and became more and more passionate about it. And, um, and then I was facing a potential layoff. And when I realized that, I thought, well, I really would like to work with this. I, I'm a facilitator. I'm really passionate about mindfulness. Why don't I put that together and help other people? It, like I was always, I, w- I was also delivering activities with my classmate or with, sorry, with my colleagues. Uh, during team meetings, we were doing. We started doing these mindful conversation starters. There's a, a deck of cards you can get that are, uh, yeah, from uh, Mindfulness Without Borders, which is where I did my certification. And you just they're just questions that open up dialogue and conversation between people that goes uh, below the surface. You know, that's not just like talk about your favorite movie. You know, but it's something that's a little more meaningful. Um, and uh, and so I would lead with one of these questions, and we would take some quiet, and we would close our eyes. We wouldn't fully meditate, but we would kind of just get into that zone of being present and ready for whatever was going to come our way and non-judgmental, which is a huge part of mindfulness. Paying attention, you know. That refers to the clip that I played, Rob, in the intro is uh, John Kabat-Zinn, for for those of you that don't know, uh, author of um, uh, Full Catastrophe Living. And I think it was like 1979 that he brought uh, mindfulness to the forefront. But that that was his definition as well. Present moment, non-judgmental, as if your life depended on it and then he paused for a bit and said because it does ah <laughs> yeah yeah paying attention also on purpose on purpose paying attention on purpose in the present mo- to the present moment non-judgmentally yes i think the non-judgmental piece is probably the hardest um in western society um more than anywhere else i there was a speaker who was an interpreter he's a he was in. He was being trained in, in um, to become a Buddhist monk. He was practicing and going through that process. And he was also the interpreter for the Dalai Lama 
uh, Tupton Jinpa, who you might have heard of before. He was one of the speakers I saw at one of the conferences for uh, MSGI, the agency or the organization I was just talking about. And I got to talk to him when I had a broken foot and I was in a cast at this conference and we, we talked about, you know, the, the pain and suffering and, you know, and, and dealing with that. Anyway, um, he often talks about how that piece is harder in Western society than anywhere else. In a lot of different parts of the world, the, the non-judgmental part is like, yeah. What, what, what's the big deal? But we are super focused on improvement, goal setting, targets, getting better. I can be better. And I want to be really clear. Mindfulness is not about improvement. Mindfulness is about accepting what is. It's about being at peace with whatever the reality is that is happening. It's finding peace and calm through acceptance instead of fighting the anger, the emotion, the frustration, whatever it is that's going on. So for example, when you're meditating or when you're just taking a mindful moment, it can be as simple as turning away from your computer screen for a minute, shutting your eyes. I'm actually doing it because I'm thinking about it. Taking a couple of deep breaths, noticing what's happening in your body. And then realizing, oh, you know, my heart is beating really quickly. My chest is tight. I wonder what's going on. And then taking a moment and noticing, I guess I'm feeling anxious. I wonder what I'm feeling anxious about. Oh, well, let that go. Keep breathing. Focus on the breath. Notice the breath. The feeling of the breath as it enters, as it leaves. What happens in your body and focusing on one area of your body where you're noticing the breath and what it causes in your body. How helpful that can be. And it, it really can be one minute a day. It actually can. I've learned over time that dosage, the concept of dosage, which is <laughs> it, <laughs> it, it doesn't have to be amount, it's consistency, mm-hmm. it's frequency. So it doesn't matter. You don't need to be doing half an hour meditation every morning, noon, and night. Like it, that is not, you don't need to be sitting on a mountain by yourself in the middle of a pristine wilderness to meditate. You can get up in the morning, find a quiet moment, do it on your lunch break from work, grab a corner if you're in a stressful situation. 10 minutes is amazing. 10 minutes is fantastic. But for a lot of people, that gateway beginning is really one or two and three and five and then slowly working up to more than that in 10 to 15. Yeah, will be great. But I'd rather you do it every day than try to work on a number. Uh, that's great advice because I think a lot of people listening, uh, they know a bit about mindfulness. And like I said at the beginning, I, I'm not quite sure if we really understand what it is. When you introduce it to people, do they have the perception that it's about relaxation? <laughs> oh, I'm so glad you said that. I actually, in my notes, thinking about getting ready for this, that was one of the things that I wrote down. It's not relaxation. Nope. But I... I'll tell you right now, if you Google it, if you start looking for help and you put the word mindfulness in there, you'll get a lot of misinformation. There are a lot of people providing apps and providing information that talk about relaxing. It's not what it is, actually. And that's what's so great about having you on the show, because I I knew that talking to someone that's a practitioner of mindfulness probably would be able to explain it best because you, you do it. And I do believe that there is a misconception that, oh, okay, so uh, mindfulness meditation, uh, you know, you sit in the, you know, the full lotus position and, it, you know, it's to reduce stress and, and it's for, for relaxation. And then once they start practicing it and they're in those few minutes that you talked about, then the realization that there's all these thoughts going on. 
Yes. That's not too relaxing. <laughs> yeah, and that's the hard part. And I've had people often uh, in classes and also with my colleagues say, oh, I, there's just too much going on in my mind. I can't meditate. It's too hard. There's too much happening. Well, it is going to be like that at the beginning. Like, be prepared for it. It was for me. It is for every human being who's ever tried it. I don't care how enlightened uh, how many years you've practiced, it's never going to go away. That's the nature of the mind. The mind wants to tell you, don't forget about that thing this afternoon. Oh, you forgot something this morning. Oh, don't, aren't you still frustrated about what that person said to you earlier today? Aren't you hungry? What's for dinner tonight? Like your mind is going to keep doing that. It thinks it's helping you and supporting you in not forgetting and, in in you know, noticing things and potentially attaching as we talked about earlier. So it's going to keep happening. So you don't want to get in a battle with your mind. It, it, that doesn't help. But what you're doing in meditation is you're, you're noticing. And whether it, it might not be meditation. It might be a writing activity. It might be mindful walking. Um, I just want to say this because people will maybe think if meditation is not for me and not really pay attention much to what we're sharing. So I want to say, I did this yesterday. I went for a walk. I live near a big park. I was under some stress about some stuff personally happening uh, in my family and I was just, it was bothering me and I was stressed at work and I was just kind of having a moment. I thought, what would help me? So I went for a walk and it was quite windy and, uh, and so I thought, I know what I'll do, I'll make this a mindful walk. So something I learned from a local Toronto group called the Consciousness Explorers Club, uh, who I really enjoy. They what like, a beautiful name! I know, isn't that great? They like they like uh, exploring different different areas of uh, mindfulness and meditation and different practices. And they do online um, pay what you can um, groups on Monday evenings. Um, they used to be in person and then they switched online during the pandemic and uh, they're moving to more things in person too. But anyway, at one of their retreats that I attacked and a lot of retreats during the pandemic, I attended a retreat of theirs online and they talked about this see, hear, feel uh, walking meditation. So what you're doing the whole time you're walking is noticing what you see, noticing what you hear and noticing what you feel. All things we miss. And when you do that without having music playing or a podcast in your ear. No offense to podcasts, they're fantastic. But <laughs> don't do them when you're trying to do your mindfulness activity. Um, but yeah, nothing in playing through your head. Nobody talking with you or anything, any other focus. It is incredible. So for example, it's a windy day. What was I hearing? The trees rustling. What was I hearing? Birds flying, people talking, walking by, the waves in the water, in the pond. I was hearing the rustle of my own jacket, you know, uh, my feet in the ground. I was feeling my feet in the ground. I was feeling the jacket and the movement. I was feeling that wind. I was seeing the same things. I was seeing those trees. I was seeing those branches. And that's all. So I did that for about an hour. Not, not entirely. I mean, this isn't going to be, don't think you have to walk for an hour. Like you do it for 10 minutes and then you're distracted because guess what? That's what your mind does in meditation too. So you oh, do look, it for a little while, it's going great. Exactly. <laughs> you know, or, 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 and that's okay. Cause that would be seeing something, right? So <laughs> yeah, in, instead it's like, right? <laughs> instead it's like, oh yeah, what was I going to do? Oh, oh, I have that meeting afterwards. I forgot to get that document for that meeting. That's what happens in the middle of your mindful walk. And that's when you go, right. Okay. There's that thought again. There's that thought. Interesting. I'm having that thought. 
here's that emotion I started worrying now. Now I'm concerned. Now I'm stressed. Now I'm feeling anxious. Let's go back to the practice. What else do I notice? There's a squirrel. <laughs> there's a bird. There's this. There's that. Right? right? And you start to notice things again. Uh, and when you come back, I tell you right now, if you do that for 10, 15 minutes, you will feel different afterwards. You will feel refreshed. You'll have a different perspective. That is a mindful activity. I, I want to touch on self-compassion in a minute because uh, you're you're going into more education and furthering your your interest in mindfulness with mindful self-compassion. But my thoughts are is that one of my experiences, which I thought I thought was profound, and and I, I had to do it over and over again with a group, is mindful eating. Oh yes, that was one I wanted to mention today too. Yeah. Great. If you please, yeah, please do. Please explain what mindful eating is, which is okay, probably sure. most people. Probably a misconception about that. You're like, what? <laughs> yeah, it's really interesting. Um, the idea behind this is just we often eat in the drive through in the car, in front of TV, at movies, um, doing something at the same time. This is not, again, remember, non judgmental. This is not a moment to say, oh, I'm bad, I do that. That's not what I'm trying to say at all in, in any of the things I'm sharing. But that is very common in our culture now. So the idea about mindful eating is that you take a moment and you pause. Sorry, pausing is huge in generally speaking. Um, pausing before a meeting, pausing before speaking, pausing to allow yourself to, you know, speak intentionally and, and all of that. Anyway, you pause, you have no background, nothing else, you, nothing, you're not watching anything, you don't have any screens open, you're not looking at your phone, that's the other big one. And you take a moment and say you pick something, uh, a good way to practice it the first time is to take something like a piece of fruit, like a small, like a grape or maybe an almond or something like that. And you take a moment and you really look at that and you roll it around in your fingers and you just notice what, what is, hmm, what does it feel like? What's the texture of that? Um, what does it look like? What's the color? And just, just, just noticing just noticing everything about it, the quality of it. Is it hard? Is it soft? If I squeeze it, will it <laughs> let anything happen if it's a grape or something like that? And then you slowly but surely take these steps um, of sniffing it, noticing the scent, kind of just gently putting it against your lips and tasting the edge of it but not eating it yet. It can be excruciating. The first time people do this, this feels really weird. Anyway, um, but then you, once you do get it into your mouth, you slowly, you don't even bite it right away. You just feel the texture of it. You notice the, the, the taste of it. And you take a moment to imagine where that came from. Who grew that? Who worked on that? What was the weather like in the field where that was grown and that was developed? Um, what was the process that got it to where you are? And you had that moment of gratitude for it actually coming into your life and being available to you. And aren't you fortunate to have this piece of fruit to eat? And then you, it can really open your heart when you start to think about people who don't have this and how fortunate you are to have this. And then to, to actually take a moment and do all of that, then to eat, start chewing it really enjoy it, notice it, and take your time and slowly swallow it, and you're doing all of this. This can, it can take five minutes, it can take ten minutes. Um, it's not an easy activity. I wouldn't start with mindful eating. In the training that I've done before, it's usually something that comes a little bit later because it is a challenging practice for a lot of people. But um, 
but really valuable. And I had one of my participants said that it was the most impactful thing out of six weeks of training because she became, she started changing the way that she ate and she immediately started to lose weight. She wasn't trying to lose weight. She didn't change her diet. She just started being more mindful. And when you think about it, that is usually part of most diet, quote unquote, I hate diet, uh, but most weight management or most healthy eating plans are involving mindfulness. They might not call it mindfulness, but they'll say, turn off the television, find a quiet place, really enjoy your food, enjoy the taste. Those are mindful activities. Slow down. Slow down. Which is mindful. Mindful. just, Just even the whole idea of slowing down when you're eating, you know, because you just tend to kind of shovel it in. But if you're if you slow things down, it's a great start. Sure. Slowing down is is a, a central part of mindfulness. Slowing down, pausing, noticing, awareness, which doesn't awareness is so limited if you don't do those things. Our general awareness of what we're going to notice in these environments is much less. I've had, I have a tendency to share photos that I take on mindful walks. And even if I'm not doing like a fully mindful see here, feel practice, but I'm just walking and noticing things, I take pictures and share them. And I repeatedly will on social media, people will say, how did you notice all of that? I would never have noticed. I get that all the time. And I say, you just have to look. <laughs> I mean, it's really not something major and difficult, but but it we don't take the time. You know, we're, we're often rushing. We're so stimulated. We have so mm. many messages, so much stimulation and interruption and distraction. Uh, it's painful to feel these real emotions. And so we block them with food, with alcohol, with drugs, with entertainment, with anything. I mean, even sports and physical activity, um, if done, you know, in extreme ways are, are avoidance techniques. And so, it, again, not to judge that, but just to say, so how can we be more aware um, and present in our lives and, and to be able to then uh, notice what happens when you notice uh, things in your environment and you notice your own emotions and your own feelings and your own sensations is that it impacts how you are with other people. And what a great segue to compassion. You mentioned in mindful eating, part of it is being grateful that you have this food, you have the ability to eat that chocolate, and that perhaps other people don't, having that compassion for others. Let's talk a bit about mindful self-compassion. How did you come across it and what did it mean for you when you first understood it? Uh, yeah, a favorite a favorite topic. It's it's a central part of mindfulness anyway. So it's not that it's necessarily separate, but it is an area of study and an area of focus that is growing uh, quite a lot. My first introduction was through I would say Tara Brock, B R A C H. I highly recommend her Rain practice um, and her writing. Uh, she's got several books: Radical Compassion um, and Radical Acceptance. She's a psychotherapist who focuses on mindfulness. Um, and particularly mindful self-compassion. And RAIN is to recognize whatever the emotion is, to allow that emotion, to then take a moment to investigate that emotion, what's behind that emotion, and then nurture. Take a moment to nurture what it is that, what what do I need now? Now that I've noticed, okay, I'm feeling really sad about this. 
this is I'm I'm at that sadness that's happening. I'm feeling that well up in me, my body. So I'm, how do I feeling that? I'm feeling that in my heart. I'm feeling a little bit of a palpitation. You know, I'm feeling a lump in my throat. My eyes are watering. I'm sad. Investigation. What's making me feel sad? It hurts that this person I know is ill. It hurts that I. I'm concerned about that person and it makes me sad to imagine something happening to them. whatever it is that you're experiencing nurture what would support me right now how do I care for myself in this moment where I'm feeling this sadness and one very common practice in mindful self-compassion is to put the hand on the heart breathe in say to yourself several lines about caring for yourself and it could be may I be at peace may I be safe may I be well and may I feel relief may I feel uh, peace may I feel you know whatever it might be um, that can be very difficult to do for ourselves as we talked about earlier so a lot of different traditions with self-compassion start with compassion to others first so one of the most common activities is starting with compassion for others the loving kindness it would be a, a very very popular form of uh, meditation which again yeah, stems from Buddhism and so you 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 in your meditation and you can find lots of free meditations online from Tara Brock and also from Kristen Neff N-E-F-F uh, and her book self-compassion um, lots of free meditations and it's first of all imagining someone close to you who you really care about and uh, a really important person to you and sending them this love and care thinking about somebody who's having a hard time sending them this this concern this this may you be well may you be safe may you be at peace and then slowly somebody that you don't know as well and somebody that is maybe peripheral an acquaintance uh, somebody who you actually really don't like, somebody who you have like a judgment about, who that must be you. difficult to oh, do. Oh, that's so difficult because you're you're really really hard. It's the hardest one, I think. It's one step harder than yourself, or sometimes not. Sometimes yourself is the harder is 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 uh, a little bit easier than it's hard to say, right? It can go either way. But yeah, and then moving to yourself last. Sometimes people start with self and then move to the other person. Uh, but anyway, these activities really help us to manage our own emotions, our own reactions, which allows us to be more present and open to others. If we aren't able to find compassion for ourselves, it's almost impossible to be able to find it for other people um, in a deep sense, in a real sense. We might think we are, but we aren't really fully doing that. You mentioned to me that um, you're going to be going into another retreat. This one is a, a five-day retreat. Is this a, a silent retreat? Tell me more about no. what you hope to, to gain from this one. Uh, it's a self-compassion training for five days in retreat form. So it won't be silent. We will be learning. Uh, there will be periods of silence. Uh, there will be, I don't know exactly when I think maybe over meal times or there might be certain parts of the day that are silent but for the most part we're learning so we need to be um, hearing the information and, and able to talk to each other and so on I'm just excited to do it with other people uh, in person somewhere in person uh, yeah. yeah yeah so you have that opportunity um, yeah. over you know a coffee or, or break time to, to, to actually be potentially in front of if we're not silent yeah uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's no, where the mindful mean, eating comes in 
Totally, totally. No, but, but I, I don't know how it's going to look, but uh, it'll be a small group, so it, there won't be a, a large number of people, so there'll be definitely be an opportunity to connect with others. I'm turning 60 this year, and I want to support Congratulations. myself. Thank you. I want to really do something reflective and meaningful with, uh, with this transition, and so I decided on doing something that involved travel but did not wasn't just sightseeing. Not that that's wonderful, and I'll be doing that afterwards, but I really want to also go deeper and do some reflection. I uh, would love to hear your experiences and have you come on for part two. Because w- listening to you, and I'm sure the listeners saw this, uh, heard this too, is your ability to actually bring us into a guided meditation. And uh, it's your radio background, right? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, it, it it comes in handy for sure, knowing how to speak in a certain way to uh, draw an audience. But it's also, uh, you need to also have certain qualities in your voice that, that people respond to that are, you know, calm, warmth slow, and calm yes. and so on. Yeah, warmth, yeah. yeah. Um, but I'd love to do that. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure, Greg. I'd, I'd be happy to come back and do that. It'd be wonderful for you to come back. And uh, let's just spend a few minutes. I mean, it's it, this isn't this isn't live radio anymore. We can have dead air. We can actually... Have mindful dead air. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, back in the day when we were both trained in the, at the same place and the experience oh my God, that yeah. we had, it was like you never, uh, you were so worried about dead air and silence. But it's, it's all, it's kind of hard to imagine that I'm actually in an area where it's all about silence now, isn't it? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's a big, big shift, big transition. Definitely. As the last question for you, and I, I, um, mentioned to before we uh, went into uh, the studio for this is mindfulness is becoming more and more well-known and I appreciate your definition and uh, expanding on what it is. How do you see mindfulness fitting into the larger conversation around mental health and wellness in general? Like we, we talk a lot about the mind-body connection with the podcast, right? How do you see mindfulness and mindful self-compassion being part of a future important conversation regarding mental health and physical health? Well, I, I mean, as as you and I both know, it's already become a big part of the conversation. I'm so delighted. Uh, a number of years ago, it was not at all. Uh, there was really no focus on mindfulness. But now there are centers training psychotherapists in delivering mindful, uh, mindfulness-focused therapeutic interventions. Um training instructors in MBSR, which is Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction, which is the program that started with, of course, John Kabat-Zinn, who we talked about at the beginning, at the, at the very start, and it, that's helping people with lots of anxiety-related issues. That's been around for quite a while, but what I like is that it's not just that kind of deep focus on people who are really troubled, but all of us in our lives. Um, it, I, a lot of organizations are starting to include things like apps as part of the benefit package, uh, mindfulness apps. Um, and uh, that's not for everybody. Personally, it's not a big uh, preference of mine, but I know that for some people that's their gateway and whatever it takes, I would rather they do something than, than avoid it. So that's that can be really helpful. Um, mindful apps that organizations are, in, are using and um, also, as I said, therapeutic interventions that are becoming more and more common. You don't necessarily need a lot of training to help somebody to take a moment and be quiet and reflective um, and to notice what's happening in their body and so on. Uh, trauma-informed mindfulness 
Angeles is a huge area of growth and study in Canada and in the U.S. I wish we had time and, to discuss that. Yeah, yeah, that's a whole other Maybe topic, but I think that's a big one, right? And so I think that that has in, increased and will continue to increase. So for our listeners, they, they know a little bit more from your perspective as a practitioner of mindfulness. They understand mindfulness a little bit more. If they are interested in trying this and trying to sit for a few minutes in meditation, what would you uh, recommend to them in launching into a mindfulness practice? What, what would your recommendations be? Well, uh, I think it can. It depends on your style um, and your personality. For some people, a class is really helpful, like a basic mindfulness class. Um, but for a lot of people, that isn't really the first thing, right? They want to just explore it first and see if this is even for me. And so you can find so many free meditations uh, online. I would just encourage you to look for established people as opposed to whatever is out there. There's a lot of stuff that actually isn't really, as we talked about, right, is more relaxation focused. But to look for some of the people we talked about, Dr. Rick Hansen, um, Tara Brock, uh, Kristen Neff, Chris Germer, people who are more established and you can see the books that they've written, you can read about them and you get a sense of, okay, this is somebody who's got an approach that I like. You won't like everybody. Um, there will be, don't give up on the first one you listen to. You might listen to one and think, oh, I've heard this many times. That voice just really grated on my nerves. That didn't, so, so move on. But don't give up at that point. Look for somebody else and see what you think about that. But um, even before you do that, you might wanna try something just on your own of the practices I talked about. Um, in terms of just a couple of minutes of noticing your breath and turning away from your computer screen or your phone or whatever that might be, trying that mindful walk we discussed, trying something that feels kind of comfortable to you as a starting point. Um, one thing I will recommend is something called uh, Take Five, which is a breathing activity that focuses on the five, the four fingers and the thumb and a breath going up and down. Yeah, you, you actually take your finger for each breath, goes up and down the thumb, breath one, up and down wow. the next finger, breath two, and you go through the whole five. I've shared that in, in the classes that I've led and I had my participants do it in the line at the grocery store, try it in the dentist's chair, you know, places that feel stressful. Um, and it has calmed them in like 30 seconds. So something like that is really an easy thing to try. Easy, simple recommendations to yes. introduce yourself into to mindfulness. As I mentioned earlier, we're going to have you come back for part two on mindfulness. There's so many questions I had, especially, you know, uh, how you see mindfulness impacting and helping our physical health. But more importantly, we're going to have you come back and for you to do a, a few minutes of mindfulness with us and let us know how the retreat went for you and what, what your takeaways were. We'd love to hear more about it. I'd be happy to do that, Greg. I'll look forward to it. Thanks so much for this opportunity. Thanks so much for coming into the studio. Good to see you again. You too. Isn't she great? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Actually, I've got a story for you. Oh, no. So Val's working in the FM station. I'm working in the AM station, and I got a pack of firecrackers. I heard this story. So <laughs> I what I did, my stupid 20-year-old kid decides to light a firecracker, run across the hall into the FM studio, barge in the door, throw the firecracker in, get back to the AM studio to listen to the FM 
and hear the firecracker go off and her scream. <laughs> she, I really, I'm really, really embarrassed by that. Well, you shouldn't be because we used to always play pranks oh, yeah. on people. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I, I got to share you a couple of stories with you. One of them was the fire extinguisher story. I'll never forget this. I think the guy's name was Eugene. And one day he, t- <laughs> he, he took the, he took the CO2 and sprayed it into the studio while someone was doing a break. But anyway, those are old radio stories. But yes, I do remember Val. Uh, and again, what a wealth of information. She's all about mindfulness. Mm-hmm. And it's new to me only because I've never studied mindfulness. Mm-hmm. As she said, do some deep breathing. So you were paying yeah. attention when you're producing the show. When I was, oh, of course. Oh, okay, so you're paying I attention. Was. Okay, so so uh, we're gonna have a test now. So, um, okay, yeah, um, test. Yeah, okay. Go ahead. So, uh, so what's mindful eating, Rob? Oh, there you go. That's a good one. It's it's called what she said awareness. Mm-hmm. I, th- I I think if you're aware of what you're eating, she talked all about this. She said she didn't like to call it diet. No. No, but people she, do lose lose weight doing mindful eating. Yeah, yeah. Of course, but uh, uh, and as she said, she didn't like to call it diet. However, if she did say, just be aware of what you're putting in to your body. That's what I gathered from the interview. Be aware of what you're doing. Mm-hmm. I think that's 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 choice number one. Absolutely. Um, my takeaway from that is is that I I very often not aware of what I'm eating, but more importantly, and I think is what she was kind of getting at, is I'm not paying attention to eating. Uh, uh, you know, I'm watching TV, I'm shoveling the food in, I'm hungry. Yeah. But it, yeah. it is amazing because I've done it before. And as I mentioned, I've done it with groups. If you if you take something like a chocolate, instead of popping it in your mouth, you look at the chocolate. Be one with the chocolate. I knew you were going to do that. I, I had to do the movie trailer <laughs> voice, okay? I, um, what I did with these groups is um, everyone sat in a circle, all had a piece of chocolate. And it's amazing how it was so difficult for people, and, and for me too when I first tried it, so difficult um, to pay attention, right? Yeah. To pay attention and be aware of the experience yes. of eating that chocolate or raisin or or whatever it is. And I learned from that because very briefly, I when I go to restaurants, I, I try to practice mindful eating. Because very often I'll be in a conversation and I'll be a, at a restaurant and I'm done my dinner going, okay, what, <laughs> what, what happened there? But now what I try to do, I try to, you know, feel my fork and knife and then I cut into the steak and what does the steak look uh, like, right? Okay, yeah. I, yeah, I think that's what she's getting at, you know. I, you know? I, yeah. I see that. Let me share this with you. What I've noticed, at least in myself, and I'll share this here on the podcast, I went into the doctor two years ago, and my blood matter, if you will, was very high. And my doctor thought I was pre-diabetic, okay? So... I had to make some decisions in my life, some choices. And one of them was I had to cut out all the pop I was drinking. I was mm-hmm. I was a pop drinker. It's not alcohol. It's not drugs. It's just pop. The minute I cut out 
the pop in my diet, I, uh-huh. I dropped 40 pounds. No word of a lie. Really? No word of oh, a lie. So the doctor made you aware of that? Well, the doctor and myself made both yeah. of us aware of that. And like I said, I started, I, I, I stopped pop. I love pop. I love Coca-Cola. I love ginger ale. For our U.S. listeners, he's talking about soda. Yes, yeah, <laughs> soda. And but I but I knocked it right out of my diet, and lo and sure. behold, I dropped forty pounds. Now the question is: Now how do I keep the weight off? And 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 this is where my doctor talks to me about exercise and stuff like that, because there there comes a point where okay after you're down so many pounds and whatever you have to go on in life, but it includes exercise. It comes back to what Val's talking about is being mindful, being aware, mindful awareness. Without judgment. Without judgment. Without judgment. So, so for example, if you do have a a pop, right? And go, okay, I'm going to have one pop this week, right? I had a ginger ale last night with my wife. And I thought, oh, did you experience it though? Did you were you mindful, aware of drinking that pop? You probably drank it and never thought anything of it. I did. Did you enjoy it? I did, because you you can enjoy it if you're aware and you're, you know, you're you're experiencing the whole thing. As as I'm drinking this ginger ale, I'm going, my weight is going to go up so big. Well, I think it's a good point, Rob, because you're talking about the, um, the, the body, right? So, you know, we talk about the mind and body. And what I was thinking when, when uh, I, I was interviewing Val is that the connection is, is that if we can train our mind, yep. if we can train our mind to be more aware of our physical health, for example, yep. Yep. right? And to be more aware and be present in the moment, not just when we're eating, but going for a walk, all these things that she talked about is... By the way, you go for a walk every day. I don't, okay? But here's one thing I will say about Greg Rennie. He goes for a walk every damn day. Well, I'm glad you say every day because I don't. But okay. <laughs> I, 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 I do try. I, I do try thought, I thought you did. I, I, I relate to that. I'm, I'm aware of, uh, of my weight gain. I'm aware of what we talked about in the other episode about emotional eating. I'm aware of that, but I, I, I really try my best to be aware uh, of my whole environment and not judge it because that's where the thoughts come. Okay. Remember at the beginning, I mentioned if you ever did meditation? Yep. So when you do meditation, the first thing you think about is, I'm sitting doing meditation. Yeah. And what time is it? And what are we going to have for dinner? Or uh, I'm thinking about the movie Deliverance. Okay. Yeah, okay. but, but that's, you know, you, you said that the, at the beginning, that's a good point, is that in meditation, if you do have these thoughts, then you allow them to go. Mindfulness is very much like that. And what you do is um, on, a, on a regular basis, uh, be mindful of what you're putting in your body because what goes in your body is going to affect your mind. And if you practice this enough, then you have a healthy mind. Therefore, the healthy body just comes along naturally. It does. You know my sister quite well. Yes. My little sister, Katie. My sister used to say to me, she says, Rob, awareness brings choice, and choice brings freedom. Oh, that's well put. Sorry to switch subject, but uh, 
she found that mindfulness and meditation helps her with with memories. People with trauma can relate to this. So she's able to uh, use mindfulness in the way of coping with trauma. And I think that if the listeners have any takeaway, definitely is that this does help with trauma, with depression, definitely with anxiety, right? It's just a matter of practicing it. And and I, I, I think that... Well, you probably heard where she talked about even like a few minutes, like 10 minutes is awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever done 10 minutes of mindfulness or meditation in your life? To be honest with you, no. (laughs) But one thing I did grab from the interview with Val was she, she, she talked about this thing with her fingers is it was one, two, three, four, five. In other words, it was a breathing exercise. And what she did point out was take the time, take a breath. And I think that's what we all have to do occasionally is just take a breath. We're breathing anyway. Why why not be aware of it and 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 incorporate it in whatever you're doing so that you know you're you're looking at life uh without judgment and you know without thoughts. Yeah. Well we 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 uh we should wrap up uh here. Rob, have you heard of Patreon? Yes, actually, I have. Where have you heard about it before? Um, A buddy of mine, uh, I don't mind mentioning his name, Brian Vollmer from Helix and I. Oh, I loved Helix. Remember Helix way back when? Anyway, uh, Brian Vollmer and I, we started this uh, thing. We wanted to put together a movie about the band, and uh, we talked about a Kickstarter video. Okay, that didn't go anywhere. But then all of a sudden, Brian brought up the thing about Patreon. And it's about supporting, you know, podcasts or supporting content that's on the Internet. Right, right. And and what's really cool is that our listeners can be Patreon backers of Mind Body Matters. If they sign up to uh, support our podcast as a Patreon member, yep. they'll get their... Um, They'll get the new episodes a couple of days before they go on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. So they they get a um, they they get to listen through Patreon. Okay. Days before, so they you know uh, it's only like a couple bucks a month, and and they have the opportunity of listening to the podcast way before everyone else does. So it's a nice a nice bonus uh, bonus thing. Now will they get a T-shirt? What? Well, if. <laughs> Now we're giving away T-shirts. Well, Thanks, I don't, Rob. I don't know. I'm just asking, will they get the T-shirt? Well, now that you brought it up. No, actually, <laughs> I'm just kidding. What Rob's talking about is we, we just recently made T-shirts of the podcast art that Mel Coleman did for us. And, and they're we, very, very nice. They are very, very nice. And they're, they're good quality uh, uh, T-shirts. So, yeah, we might do that. I, I think for Patreon members, that might be uh, an well, additional bonus. Anyway, it's an incentive to uh, keep people listening to our podcast. Right. So three or four bucks a month, and, you know, you get a chance to listen to the uh, uh, the episodes way before everyone else does. So yeah. if you're interested, listener, it's easy to sign up. You go to patreon.com backslash mindbodymatters. So that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com backslash mind body matters and thanks to those who sign up already we've had people sign up already and we have david m mills and mm. boyo 2023 so we uh we thank those listeners and we appreciate your support mind body matters 
is produced by Reefer Communications, and we'll be back soon with another episode. In the meantime, be kind to yourself. And most importantly, be well. Thanks for listening. And if there's a topic that you'd like to hear about, drop us a line at mb-matters.com. Be sure to like and follow us on all our socials. And if you like what you hear, hit subscribe or follow and share with your friends.